Welcome to the North Shore Vineyard Church audio podcast. I'm Crispin Schroeder. Today on the podcast, we have audio from our Sunday service on April 3rd, 2011 in downtown Covington. This is part 11 of our series on the book of Philippians, Letters from Prison. This particular message is entitled, The Work of Salvation. This message, we're going to look into several kind of theological statements about the Christian life that Christians have wrestled with for hundreds of years. Hopefully you will find this insightful in your own journey. Also, just a reminder, we're going to be having a, an Easter service in the Greater Covington Center in which we will combine both of our weekend services for a service at 1045 on Easter morning. That'll be in the Greater Covington Center. So we will have more information on how you can get there. It's only about eight blocks from our current location. So put that on your calendar, and we hope that you can bring a friend to join us. Let's head to the talk. Thanks for listening. We're in the book of Philippians. We've been here for three months now, and we've made it all the way up to part 11. And this is our text for today is Philippians 2, 12 through 13. This series, we've entitled it Letters from Prison because it was an actual prison letter. Paul wrote it not in seminary or uh, at some kind of Bible college. He wrote it in a prison cell, and it's to a church that he planted, the the first church that he ever planted. So uh, we're going to pick it up in... Chapter 2, verses 12 through 13 today. Apostle Paul writes, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but how much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Occasionally, I get people emailing me questions, and and I like that. If, If you've got questions about anything, if, if particularly if we're covering it on the weekend, go ahead and shoot me an email. That, that's, that's very good. I kind of have been around certain churches sometimes where you were not encouraged to ask any questions. You're required to, you know, they actually expect you to just kind of be quiet and just pay attention to whatever the pastor says, and that finishes it. But um, uh, thankfully, I have some people around here who regularly shoot me questions about things. And so I'm going to start off today with a question that pertains to this, what we're looking at today. Um, Back in January, when we were only a few weeks into this series, uh, I got this question, and uh, a lady in our church, and she, she apologized. She said, look, I've just got to apologize. I'm kind of getting ahead, but we've spent so long in the first chapter of uh, Philippians. I just went ahead and moved on to the first, two ver- first few verses of Philippians chapter 2. Um, but she says this, <clears throat> Why would you need to work out your salvation with fear and trembling if God is good and loving? Does fear translate more like reverence? I'm having a hard time reconciling Scripture that cautions me to be afraid of God when I'm supposed to be in love with Him. Help me, Rabbi Schroeder. (laughs) No, she actually put that on there. Yes. And I think since somebody started that, I think I'm going to get some business cards printed out. I think that would be cool. (laughs) So... My last time I'm coming to this church. Um, <clears throat> what's that? Yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. Um, so, so we're going to start off looking at these passages by looking at that question first. 
how do we balance this idea of fear and trembling and the love of God? Has anybody ever asked that question before? You ever wondered that yourself? Oh, yeah, I have too. Like, what, how does that go together? Like, we're supposed to love God as a loving father. Are we supposed to be, like, paranoid? Like, you never know when God's going to fly off the handle and smite you or something? Or uh, how's this fear and trembling stuff play out in a loving relationship? Well, I think probably the best way to answer this, Bible scholars tend to, think, to, to see all the time that Paul, his writings, they very much mirror themes from the Old Testament. Actually, Paul uses the same words on many occasions that you can find in the Psalms and in Old Testament books. Understand, Paul was no slouch when it came to Bible study. In his previous life before being a Christian, he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. You know, he was a leader of leaders. He could recite several books of the Bible to you, you know, out of the word of his mouth. So he had such a rich heritage of Old Testament that when he writes stuff in the New Testament, it's, it's, it's in his writing style. And so most scholars believe that this, this little phrase, um, fear and trembling, it's really kind of a nod back to uh, these themes you see in the Old Testament when people bump into God. Uh, remember when the Israelites, after they get released out of Egypt, they go out into the wilderness, and then they come to this mountain, Mount Sinai, and, and Moses goes up to that mountain to, to receive the Ten Commandments. You saw the movie, right? And, uh, and, and it's a terrifying experience for the children of Israel. They're like, what is this God that got us out of Egypt? The, the whole mountain is like covered in this cloud of smoke, and it's shaking, and, and uh, they're kind of terrified. They say, Moses, you go up and deal with this guy. We're not ready to deal with him as a people. That's, that's fear and trembling in one sense. Um, <clears throat> But probably a more personal example we can look at was from the book of Isaiah. Now, I didn't put this up on the screens today. We're just going to briefly touch on it. But Isaiah 6 is kind of a famous passage where Isaiah gets kind of brought into a worship service that's going on around the throne of God. And this is what it looks like. It, it's, it's kind of bizarre, the, the wording. Um, he says, in the king, Isaiah 6, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, just like the song we were singing, seated on a throne, and the reign of his robe filled the temple. The train of his robe filled the temple, sorry. <laughs> Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voice, the doorpost and threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. So what's, what's Isaiah's first experience when he realizes where he is? It's like, oh crap, I'm, I'm in deep doo-doo right now. I, I am not prepared to be in front of God right now. He, he's, he's realizing... I, I'm foul-mouthed, and the people I live with are foul-mouthed. We, we, it'd be kind of like showing up at the, the royal wedding. In a, uh, when's that thing happen? I, I see it's, it's happening soon. The, the 20th? 29th? Okay. Uh, showing up at the royal uh, wedding on, only to realize you're in your underwear, you know? And it's like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm not prepared to be here in this moment. And, and that's kind of a moment that, that Isaiah is having. He's, he sees the glory of God, and, and all of a sudden he's like, whoa. I don't need to be here. I'm, I'm, I'm a mess. We see a similar thing in Revelations, uh, a book written by the Apostle John. John had spent several years with Jesus um, doing ministry, but he has a, a slightly different encounter with Jesus uh, on the book of Revelations. 
John writes, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white, like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze, glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters." In his right hand he had held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I'm alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys to death and Hades. So you can see John's experience with God was... Not that different from Isaiah. He, what's he do? He just falls down dead. He's like, I got nothing. <laughs> He's just uh, a pile of nothing there on the floor in front of Jesus. Now, these images of Jesus and the images of God, they're, they're kind of terrifying, aren't they? I mean, dude, you see somebody with eyes burning like fire and a sword coming out of their mouth? It's like, whoa. See, John had been around Jesus for years. Now, now, understand that this is apocalyptic literature, so they, they kind of use a lot of symbolism and stuff like that. But uh, John had spent years around Jesus in his ministry. He'd been around Emmanuel, God with us, God incarnate, God is human. So he experienced that. He even experienced Jesus after the resurrection. It's, it says at the end of the book of John, they ate fish together out by a campfire and stuff and had some conversations. But now John is bumping into the ascended Lord in all of his glory. And, and it's not like the Jesus that they just hung out with down in, at the Sea of Galilee fishing. It's terrifying in a sense because he sees Jesus in all of his glory. I, I heard someone say one time, whenever you see the word therefore in scriptures, you've got to say, what's it there for, right? You ever heard that before? Whenever you come up to a scripture that says, therefore, ask yourself, what's it there for? So I, I wanted to say all this stuff about Isaiah and Revelations because I think it kind of helps us understand the therefore. Because the passage we looked at today uh, starts with, therefore, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Therefore. Now, what is that therefore coming on the heels of? Well, it comes on what we covered last weekend, which was, I, I said it was a, a worship hymn, uh, likely of the early church. And this is what that hymn says, Philippians 2, 6 through 11. Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used in his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, work out your salvation in fear and trembling. 
What's the connection there? Well, Paul's kind of making that Old Testament connection of fear and trembling. These verses that, that Paul has just talked about, these are, worse, these are verses that Jesus came into our world, he, he experienced life as a human, and he endured the worst kind of death possible, but he was resurrected. And because he went through all of that, the cross, the resurrection, now he's seated at the right hand of God in all his glory. And there's going to be a day where everybody has an experience just like John did. <laughs> And just like Isaiah, everybody's going to have that, whoa, every knee is going to bow. Nobody's going to be standing up when they see Jesus in all his glory. And so Paul goes on to, to say, if that's the reality, if that's the future that we're, that, that we're being pushed towards by God, by the revelation, by the work of Jesus in our world, if that's the future we're heading to, then let's go ahead and start living our lives in that reality right now with, with a big view of Jesus, with a high view of Christ. Let us, let us see him for who he really is. This is what, what many would refer to as the fear of the Lord. Proverbs 9, 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. What's this mean? Well, our world, the last couple of hundred years, there has been this, we've, we've been so defined by the enlightenment. You know, everything is, is, is studied and broken down to its most fundamentals. And actually, we've seen fundamental Christianity. Fundamentalism is kind of a reaction to the enlightenment thinking, which is, you know, trying to break Christianity down to its, its fundamental components. But wisdom doesn't start with fundamentals. Wisdom doesn't start by breaking everything down to its smallest components. That may be the wisdom of the world, but the wisdom of God, the path to that starts out with this amazing view of God that he is large and he is in charge and he's bigger than I could ever think. And imagine his love is greater, his peace surpassing, amazing. And when you get a view of God like that, you're starting down the path to wisdom. When you get a view of how just mind-blowing that God is more beautiful than beauty, more majestic than majesty. Kind of reminds me of a song. Uh, <laughs> when you get a view of his transcendence, then, then you're starting to, to step on the path of wisdom. This is what Paul is getting at. See, we, we, don't, we don't start... We don't start on the path to wisdom and understanding by reductionism. We start in a place of worship, in a place of seeing God in all his greatness. I, I love this quote. Um, Eugene Peterson wrote a great book a few years ago. He's written many, but um, Christ Plays in 10,000 Places. He says, The moment we find ourselves unexpectedly in the presence of the sacred, our first response is to stop in silence. We do nothing. We say nothing. We fear to trespass inadvertently. We are afraid of saying something inappropriate. Plunged into mystery, we become still. We fall silent. All our senses alert. This is the fear of the Lord. See, I think we're, we're happening, we're getting a little bit closer to this idea of fear and trembling. That, that it, it's, it's the idea of seeing God for who he is. Yes, Jesus. I, I, one of my favorite things about Jesus is the incarnation, that he became one of us. I, I, I could just chew on that truth for days, but, but he didn't just become one of us. He, he is actually exalted to the highest place. And when we get a vision of that, 
you, you, you tread lightly. Has, have you ever had an experience where you've, you felt God in such a strong way, you just had to shut up? We probably need more of those, right? <laughs> I had this experience several years ago. I was in uh, Mobile, Alabama, and, and my band was invited to lead worship for this some kind of conference, and they had all kinds of different denominations gathered together, and probably about a thousand people in this in this room. And it got to a point where a few songs into it, we got to the end of the song, and people just spontaneously started singing. I mean, it wasn't like any kind of words or anything. It wasn't like we were all singing some kind of song. They just started singing out of their hearts, out of their spirits. And I got to tell you, it was the most beautiful thing I'd ever heard in my life. It just sounded like angels in that place. There may have been some angels singing with us. Uh, It sounded too good for for most of the people I knew. Uh, But in that moment... In that moment, I was just kind of undone. I felt like here I was invited to, to lead these people in worship, and I was like, I got nothing. I got absolutely nothing. If, if I play anything right now, there's no good song. <laughs> there's no good word. There's nothing profound that I, I, I can add nothing to this. Anything that I do will take away from it. It was the fear of the Lord. It was one of those moments like, God is here. I just need to shut up. And I took my guitar off, put it down, and I sat down. I was like... That's it. And this went on, the singing, for minutes, several minutes, just people singing out of their hearts. I've had a few moments like that in my Christianity. I've got to tell you, when you get a sense that God is actually, manifest presence of God is, is, is in your midst, it's, uh, it's, it's kind of scary in a good way. Because at the same time, you, you feel this kind of tension that Paul's talking about. You, you, you feel the love of your heavenly Father, the nearness, the closeness of his love that's closer than the air you breathe. But you feel this sense of, wow, it's kind of like standing next to the ocean. He's big. He's huge. I, I can't even begin to take it all in. So our faith... Our working out our salvation is grounded in, in this wonderful mystery of God's greatness. It's grounded not in fundamentals, but in awe. It's grounded in, in just getting a large view of who God is. And working out of that, the fear and trembling, is taking our relationships with God and with other people seriously. See, I think when we get down to the mechanics of it, what does this mean in, in your everyday life when you're going to work and um, you know, taking the kids to a soccer game, watching TV? How does this all work out? Well, it, it means that we take our relationships with God and with one another seriously. We kind of approach them as if they matter. I, I read a blog this week by a guy named Ed Setzer. He's a kind of a missional church planning guru guy and... Um, he was writing how a friend of his in ministry recently uh, fell into sexual immorality, and, uh, and he was real bummed out about that. But he said, you know, as a guy in ministry myself, I, I do some, some things that may seem kind of crazy to other people, but I value my relationship with my wife so much that I will never be alone with another woman. I, I make that a rule. Not because I'm just going to fall into sin with anyone, but I want to avoid even the hint of it. So he said, so what does this look like? He said, well, it means that last week, he said he, he was facing some medical things, and they wanted to do a sleep study on him. So uh, he goes to the building. It's an office building, but they had some rooms set up, uh, 
you know, like bedrooms, basically. And so he's talking to him. He says, well, who's going to be here while I'm doing the sleep test? Well, just this lady who's a te- technician there. And he said, said look, I, I don't mean to sound, you know, crazy here. But if it's just going to be this woman and me in this building with these bedrooms late at night, um, I just want to avoid even the appearance, even the appearance that something can grow. I, don't, I just I want to stay so far away. So he's like, I just, um, I'm going to have to back out of it. So he said he lost his deposit because he had to reserve the thing, and so he lost some money on it. But he said, I value my relationship with my wife that much that I, I want to, to stay as far away as I can. Now, is that insecurity? No, it's, it's really... That's really fear and trembling. That's valuing things. Same way, I got this stuff on my computer called Covenant Eyes, this program. I got it on the computer back here. I got it on my iPhone, got it on my home computer, and it's a accountability software. And basically, there's a pastor friend of mine who every two weeks, he gets a, an email with all the websites that I visited, and it'll flag anything that, that, that might be objectionable. Sometimes it flags the silliest things, too. Um, but... That means that I know anytime I'm on the computer, I'm going to have to answer to somebody for whatever I'm looking at. And I, that's, that's an amazingly freeing thing to have that. Because, you know, I, I can tell you, Crispin Schroeder left on his own, he's going to do stupid things. I mean, it, it doesn't take me long. <laughs> I, I, I value my wife and my relationship with her enough that, that I'm, I'm willing to put some things in my life that may appear to confine my freedom, but really they're bringing me into freedom. It, it's, it's a good kind of fear and trembling, right? I'm taking that relationship seriously. So that also means that, that taking that relationship seriously is, is refusing to not work through conflict. We, you know, if, if we got something going on, if we're arguing, we will get to the bottom of it. We're going to talk no matter how much we want. Even when it's talking about finances. We had that meeting this last week, you know, where we looked through all our bills and budgets. And I hate that stuff. Ah! But I know if we don't talk about it, I know that is a real breeding ground for um, anybody ever been there before, you know, financial stress. It's one of the biggest killers of marriage, you know, when you're not talking about that stuff. And we so easily want to compartmentalize our things in our marriage. But, but, but the more we can be open with that stuff, the more that we're living our lives in reverence of God. It's actually working its way out. We're, we're working on our salvation with fear and trembling, This brings me to the next uh, thing that Paul, that another issue that comes up. The, there's, there's all kinds of theological issues, I think, that are raised in these verses. The next one is, you know, that, that Paul says, work out your salvation. Does that sound a little weird to any Protestant Christians in here? Work out your salvation. What? Are we saved by grace or are we saved by works? Grace. Yeah, we've got a predominantly Protestant crowd in both services here. Uh, <laughs> Saved by grace. Yeah, well, that's what Paul says. But then he, but Paul, the guy who has been cited for the whole Protestant Reformation, saved by grace, not by works, lest any man should boast. That same Paul says, work out your salvation. What? Is the Christian life about grace or work? Yes. <laughs> it's about both. And, and Paul kind of puts this tension in these verses, and he doesn't really care to... Figure it, all out, figure it all out for us. He just kind of, yeah, work out your salvation. Well, I, I think one way we can, can kind of understand what Paul is getting at is, uh, one way that's helpful for me is Romans 12, first two verses. The Apostle Paul writing again, 
says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. You know, modern neuroscientists are just now beginning to figure out what Paul knew 2,000 years ago. Paul is basically saying here that, that if you li- offer your life to God in worship daily, continually, it's going to change your mind. They're actually starting to see that, that that actually happens at a neurological level. It actually changes your physical mind. Have you ever noticed that, you know, whatever you do over and over gets easier? We can, we can see this whether it's playing guitar. You know, when I first started playing guitar, I mean, most people give up after three or four months. It, it, your, your hands are getting all uh, calloused. And you may be bleeding. Your hands are cramped up. It doesn't sound good. You just wanted to play Freebird, and, and you, you can't, you know, it's, it's frustrating. Uh, but at some point, at some point, it starts getting a little bit easier. You start getting less awkward. At some point, people don't even mind you playing the guitar when they're in the room with you. <laughs> and, and maybe even further down the road, you might learn how to sing and play the guitar at the same time. You know, when I'm singing and playing guitar up here, I'm not really thinking a whole lot about what I'm doing anymore because I've done it for so many years. Like, I don't have to think about, oh, how do I play an E minor? It's natural. But the same can be said for sin, right? You know, that... It might have been hard to sin that first time. You think, oh, that cookie jar that I'm not supposed to get into while mom's out of the house. Uh, she told me not to. I'm just going to take one cookie. You take that one cookie, but it gets a little bit easier to take that next cookie, right? And then that next one. Or lying. Have you ever found yourself kind of like habitually lying? Uh, you're not going to tell me the truth. I don't know why I asked that. <laughs> <laughs> Believe me, I'm lying. Uh, how would I know? Uh, but you can get into a pattern where I'm just going to lie this one time and, it, and, and doing it one time and then another time. And pretty soon it becomes your habit. And that's the worst part about sin is that it has this habitual nature. That it, but, but you know what sin is doing? It's forming your mind. It's, actually, that's, that's the, what happens in addictions. Your mind actually gets formed. Your body rewards you. It, gives you, it rewards your pleasure centers. And, and, and so it starts actually changing the, the landscape of your mind. Well, Paul is saying, your work, the way you work out your salvation, it, it, it's by worshiping God. It's by presenting yourself to God. Now, God does the work of saving you. I mean, it's, it's all God's thing. I mean, you can't get yourself there but you got to partner with what god's doing you got i mean god's not he doesn't violate your will in it this is a relationship my relationship with my wife even though i got a ring on my finger i can opt out of it at any time in a sense of oh thanks for turning on the lights man that's bright i didn't know i i can stop participating in that relationship even though i got a ring on my finger right like, I could just, like, I'm not going to communicate anymore. I'm going to do my own thing. We technically are married, but our, our, our marriage relation ceases to function as a true marriage. We're, we're more roommates or whatever. Same way with God. Just because you pray a prayer one time and invite him into your heart, well, that, that's not, God, God wants to change you. He wants to make you, restore the image of God within you. So, 
we notice this tendency, whether it's sin, whether it's athletics, whether it's music. And I think probably the best analogy that I've found is it's probably kind of like gardening, the Christian life. The work that we have to do, it's, it's, it's kind of like gardening. Now, I could take some tomato seeds and throw them on this floor. And would they grow? Hopefully not. Hopefully we don't have enough dirt on the floor to do that. But if I take those same seeds and I put them in my backyard and I make sure there's some good soil <laughs> and I make sure they're getting enough sunlight and water, those seeds are going to grow. Now, I don't control the life, but I create a context for that life to happen. And I think our part is kind of on the contextual side of things when it comes to God. God, I'm going to present myself to you daily. I'm going to keep looking at you. I'm going to keep opening up my heart to what you're doing. One of the things, we, we've been covering a book in our small groups called Christianity Beyond Belief. How many people have been reading that along with us? We've got a few in here. Okay. Well, if you've been to our small groups, Paul, uh, Todd Hunter talks about this idea of being cooperative friends with Jesus. And I think that sums up kind of what Paul's getting at. When we're working out our salvation, it's, it's being cooperative, cooperative friends with Jesus. Jesus actually said one time, he says, I own, the, the son only does what he sees the father doing. And, and that's kind of, Jesus was saying that about him. He said, you know, anything you see me do in ministry, whether it's healing a leper, teaching, going to Matthew's house to hang out with a bunch of crazy outsider people. Whatever you see me doing, it's only because I'm paying attention to God and I'm doing what he's doing. I'm, the son is looking at the father. In the same way, that's us. Our job is not to change ourselves. Our job is to keep looking towards God, see what he's involved in, and we partner with him in that. We come alongside. God, what are you doing? What are you doing? And that takes... Paying attention. Has anybody ever read uh, Practicing the Presence of God? Is that the name of it? Yeah, Practicing the Presence. Yeah. Brother Lawrence. Great book. And it's, it's been like on the bestseller list of Christian stuff for like 400 years or something. This guy was a, a, a Carmelite monk. And he just decided one day uh, he was going to try to encounter God wherever he was. And well, his job for like a couple of decades was washing dishes for a bunch of monks and cleaning the kitchen. How many of y'all does that sound like hell? You know, like, <laughs> yeah, amen. Finally got an amen this morning. Uh, <laughs> but he just, he began this process and he took a journal of it, which became the book. And he's just like, what would happen if I just continually keep turning my attention to God? Not when I'm doing spiritual things, but when I'm doing random, everyday, ordinary things. And he begins to experience God in a profound way in everyday, ordinary life. That's our work. That's working out our salvation. Just learning to look at the Father, see what he's doing, to live our lives in worship. Second thing that, that, that Paul gets on here, he says, For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to feel, fulfill his good purpose. Do you ever feel yourself being compelled to do good things sometimes? Like, does anybody, you ever feel yourself wanting, like, God, I want to be a more loving person. I want to be, be more generous with my time and my money and my resources. I, you know, I, I, I want to stop arguing. Have you ever tried that kind of in your own strength before? Yeah. How'd that work out for you? Paul actually writes about struggling with that himself in, in Romans uh, 7, 18. He says, For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. 
He'll go on a few verses later to say, wretched man that I am. Everything, I, I know the right thing to do. I want it. I desire it, but I can't do it. And the things that I don't want to do, I keep doing them over and over. And if Paul left us there, it'd be kind of frustrating. But he goes on to answer in, in, in chapter 8. He says, therefore, there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from law, sin, and death. God actually gives you the will to do the right thing, but then he actually gives you the power to do the right thing. That's pretty hot. My, my first couple of years as a Christian, I got to tell you, I, I was way more disciplined than I am right now as a pastor. Um, I, I read the Bible like all the time. My, my morning, this was what would happen in the morning. My alarm would go off. I would get out my devotional, read a chapter out of that, and then I'd read three chapters out of the Bible. I'd take a shower, put on worship, made sure I had worship music going on. Then I'd, I'd leave there, go up to the church, pray for an hour and a half. Then I'd go to this Bible study. And then, I mean, I was so saturated with activities for God, but I was miserable within the scope of two years. I mean, I was ready to give up. I was like, God, I can't do this anymore. I'm going to be out in a bar just going back to my old lifestyle tonight. I can't do this anymore. And that morning I showed up at church and I had several people pray for me and most people prayed very loud, crazy prayers, nothing happened. And finally somebody... <laughs> and I tell you, I was at a place where a loud, crazy prayer wasn't going to do it for me. I just needed God. I didn't care what he looked like. Somebody came up and prayed for me. I don't even remember what they said or anything because they were praying real quiet. I don't even know who it was. They just gently touched me on, on my back. And in that moment, the Holy Spirit just just came upon me and, and I, I don't know how to describe it I feel like John or Isaiah trying to describe all, all I know is like when I walked out that day it was like Louis Armstrong was singing I see trees of green <laughs> you know uh, uh, it was like it was fall it was fall and all of a sudden everything looked like they'd gone from the wizard like on the Wizard of Oz from from black and white to Technicolor it's like all of a sudden things had changed and, and I realized that life wasn't in doing all these disciplines, not that any of the disciplines in themselves were bad, but I was, I was doing that all out of my will and out of my own strength and, and trying, and I was trying to make God happy. This is probably what Luther was doing before he did the Protestant Reformation. I, I was trying to find life and following the rules. And finally, I bumped into the power of God, and God empowered me to live the life of God. And now, that for the first time, I began to understand a little bit about grace. Grace is not just God punching my ticket to go to, to another place when I die. It's, it's God empowering me to, to, to live a transformed life in the here and now. It's a lot easier when you've got God helping you. There, there's a, one of my favorite bands is called the Wood Brothers. Anybody heard the Wood Brothers before? Okay, well, check the Wood Brothers out. They're kind of a bluesy, folksy group but um they got this one song where they say i like to be the wind i don't want to be the sail i like to be the train not the rail anybody identify with that <laughs> i like to be the wind i don't want to be the sail but but the christian life this god working in us to will and to do he's actually the the words uh, to to will and to act the, the word is is actually the greek word for energy god gives us the energy, the power, the sustaining force to do it. It's like our job is just to simply stick up the cell and say, God, where are you taking me? You take me. You be the power in my life. Only Jesus can live 
the Christian life. So I don't know um, where you're at this morning. I, I, I think the, the two things that I kind of gather out of this text that is one, that we need a higher view of God. And so maybe you're in here this morning and you've just been kind of following the rules or whatever, but you've never really gazed at God in, in worship in a sense of really letting go and seeing Him as large and in charge. Well, we're going to give you an opportunity to do that in a minute. Maybe you're also in the place where when I talk about uh, I, don't, I want to be the wind, don't want to be the sail, you realize that your whole Christianity up to this point has been your own strength. You've been trying to do it apart from being filled with the Spirit of God and the life of God. And so you're just kind of, maybe you're showing up, maybe you're putting a smile on, maybe you're saying the right things, but you're just empty on the inside. If that's you, we'd, we'd certainly like to pray with you this morning. But I just want to close by getting into a little time of worship again together. Is that all right with y'all? Why don't y'all stand up? Let's get the band back up here. Can we get monitors up here? Oh, we got them. I just encourage you in this moment... You may need to close your eyes and just let go. You may, you may even see some people sometimes just opening up their hands in worship or just sticking your hands out. You know, what is that? That's just saying, God, I surrender. I take my hands off. You, you be the king. I'm not very good at it. <laughs> you be the wind. You be the power of my life. You may want to do that in worship. You may want to just close your eyes and shut your mouth and just listen, but let, let your heart find the risen, exalted king, the one who is exalted high above all else and the one who's nearer than the air you breathe. Higher than the mountains that I face Stronger than the power of the grave Constant in the trial and in the change One thing remains One thing remains Higher Higher than the mountains that I face Stronger than the power of the grave Constant in the trial and in the change One thing remains One thing remains your love never fails, it never gives up, it never runs out on me. Your love never fails, it never gives up, it never runs out on me. Your love never fails, it never gives up, it never runs out on me. And on and on and on and on and go. And it overwhelms and satisfies my soul And I never ever have to be afraid 
Cause one thing remains One thing remains Your love never fails, it never gives up It never runs out on me Your love never fails, it never gives up It never runs out on me Your love never fails, it never gives up never runs out on me yeah. in death in life i'm confident and covered by the power of your great love my debt is paid there's nothing that can separate my heart from your In death, in life, I'm confident and covered by the power of your great love. My death is paid, there's nothing that can separate my heart from your great love. Cause your love never fails and never gives up never runs out on me your love never fails and never gives up never runs out on me your love never fails and never gives up never runs out on me your love long your love long Lord, open up our eyes to see you high and lifted up, God, to live in that reality. Lord, to be people who are cooperating with you, people who see what you're doing and respond, or people who are empowered by your presence to live this life. Lord, grace us grace us with your presence to live this life in the name of Jesus we pray amen thank you Lord well if you need some prayer this morning we'll be glad to, to stick around and and agree with you on anything and um, that's it god bless y'all see you next uh next weekend